Hello and welcome to the Beans Media Diary. We are so pleased you decided to listen in as we have got all of these things coming right up. I think it really annoys a lot of people as well because um, uh, you hear a lot of people saying, oh, you know, you're, you're allowed to say that you're, you're proud to be black, but you're not allowed to say you're proud to be white. And, and, and I, understand, I understand the frustration there. Um, let's just all get over that aspect and be proud of who we are and what we achieve. My name is Joe Stanley and I'm your host. I'm also joined with Balfe Baines. In every installment, we will be joined by a different person from the world of media, sport, technology, and everything in between. So we promise you, there will be a something for everyone. In this episode, we are joined by James Twyman, who is a director, producer, and writer. Yes, James, how are we? I'm not too bad, how are you, Joe? Yes, I'm good, thanks. It's good to see you again, well, virtually. Yeah. But... Well, yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah, a long has. time. It has, really, yeah, it's been a very long time. It's good to see you. Yeah, Joe was saying off air that he hasn't seen you for a while, James. Yeah, I think probably um, the the night out that we had after wrapping ringside. Yeah, was probably yeah. the, oh, oh, no, actually, no, tell a lie. It will be yeah. the additional scene that we shot yeah, um, yeah, yeah. with Erin. With it was the last time that we saw each other. That that's actually turned into my favourite scene of the whole show. It's a nice scene. Um, it, is, it is a really good scene. I think, <laughs> ironically, we'd hit our stride in terms of like figuring out the tone of um, of some of the acting by that scene. <laughs> yeah. And and so, but no, I, I, it was uh, it that was a really lovely little scene actually. Uh, it's always a way. It's always a way. We'll talk about ringside later on, but I wanted to get sort of a feel of your background and mm-hmm. how you got into into the filmmaking industry. Yeah, I mean, I, I've i always been um, a creative kid. Um, and I think the first, the first time I ever wanted to be a, a filmmaker, or I, I, I knew that filmmaking was a thing. Because I'd watched films for a very long time, but when I was six, about six years old when it happened, and uh, my brother's dad was a huge film uh, fan, uh, and he wanted to write his own films. He'd often read his scripts to us, um and um and and kind of he had this kind of wild imagination was able to just make up stories i really really loved um and we used to watch the old black and white errol flynn movies um he often got told off by my mum for letting us watch alien and other <laughs> highly inappropriate films at the age of five or six years old um and uh, the old, uh, I don't know if you um, remember any of the, the old Harryhausen films, the old plasticine animation, um, skeletons and Jason and the Argonauts and these really old school epic classics that Hollywood used to make, um, even before my time. Um, but I always knew as a kid that it wasn't real. Um, you know, it, there was always something about it which said to me that this was, was make-believe. And then we went to go and watch the film Jurassic Park. And I don't care what anybody says, when you're six years old and you're sitting in the cinema and you watch that film for the first time, those dinosaurs were real. <laughs> they, they were dinosaurs. And I, I couldn't separate the fiction and it just it enthralled me. Now, a lot of kids came out of that film with a love of dinosaurs. I had a love of, I came out with a love of, of films and um, I was bought the book. And we grew up quite poor. Um, we didn't really have things, but I, I don't qu- I quite know how it came about. But I ended up with being bought this book, which was the making of Jurassic Park. Now, at six years old, you can't read. 
Um, but you can look at the pictures and they had storyboards and there were pictures of people making these dinosaurs and cameras on set and, and, and people and the actors acting and, and all this kind of cool stuff. And I just remember being enthralled by it. And obviously when you're six years old, you dismiss stuff like that because at that point, if, if you if it asked me what I wanted to be at six, it would have been a Power Ranger. Um, so I hadn't quite gone to the point yet where I was like, I want to be a filmmaker, but it stuck with me forever. Um, kind of jump cut to being a teenager um, and being bullied uh, for the color of my skin, uh, being beaten up uh, regularly in the streets for that for that reason. Uh, moving from Kent to Manchester where my voice was very different, being bullied for that. Being a bit of a loner, not really having that many friends, um, not having stuff because we weren't we weren't in any way, shape, or form affluent. You know, while everybody else was, I, I, I see if we can get this the right uh, right way around. I'm sure in the comments, your your audience will correct me, but I think Timberlands were the real make, and Timber Lakes were the ones that you got when you couldn't afford Timberlands. You know, and I I I was the person who always had the knockoffs, and and that that would often do no 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 fault of anybody's. It's just the roll of the dice. And I got to about the age of 16 um, and I got to the point where I couldn't really see a point in going on anymore. Um, I, I was in the planning stage of, of basically taking my own life. And this is quite heavy and quite deep, but I think it's quite important that anybody else watching the show who may be having similar thoughts to understand that there was always that kind of light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and I was watching a Jackie Chan marathon. That's right, Jackie Chan saved my life. He didn't walk into the room and do a backflip and say, you know, don't do it, James. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> um, I was watching um, a documentary about him uh, after his films and what he went through, being sold to the circus for 10 years by his parents. They could live in Australia, being beaten every day by his, his teachers. And um, in a country where at the time, being nothing, you would stay nothing forever. And being able to go from that to being a star so big that even if you don't like his movies you know who he is i remember thinking to myself well why can't i have at least a slice of that i love storytelling i love filmmaking i love acting i love drama i love art um i'm going to have a bit of that and if i'm going to continue moving forward from this point then that's what i'm going to devote my life to and no matter what happens i will not let myself fail of course along the way you have your moments where you think that you will but you know the, there is no such thing as failure in, in my opinion only feedback um and that was the moment when all of that um, that awe from being six years old and sitting in the cinema and watching Jurassic Park and 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 having scripts read to me and watching Michael um, writing scripts and 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 just getting a, a, this idea that maybe maybe this is a thing that I could definitely do, and so I set about making my first movie at the age of sixteen years old, um, which was an awful film. <laughs> it always it, is it the was, first one. Oh, it was terrible. Um, it was called Rumble in the College because I love Rumble in the Bronx, you know, the Jackie Chan movie. Um, and it was about a kid who joins a college where he falls in love but has to fight against a racist gang in order to win the heart of the... I'm bored just saying it. But um, it, was, it was important. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and again, you know, we, we, I couldn't afford a camera. Um, so I, I, I walked around the streets of Withenshaw knocking on people's doors asking, you know, have you got a camera that I could borrow? And this old boy, um, whose name I, I, I forget, lent me his camera and said, show me the film when you're done. And I showed him the film when I was done. He said, keep it, it's yours, uh, make more films. And that was my first of a camera. Um, and I just continued making films, moved to China when I was 18, made a film out there um, and just kept on going. Um, 
and trying to improve my craft and 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 coming from a poor background where you have nothing you learn to survive on nothing and so um I know we're going to go on to it later, but you know the fact that I made Ringside on a thousand pounds, I've made other films on fifty pounds and sixty pounds, is because when you grow up with nothing, you realise that the resources are all around you, you know, um, and you learn to make and you learn to figure it out, um, and I think that served me really well. So yeah, that's that's kind of how I got started. It's a long answer, but that's how I got started. <laughs> so what, why did you move to China? Was it the Jackie Chan influence? Yes, yeah, you? yeah. At that point, I wanted to be Blackie Chan. Was <laughs> was the plan? <laughs> I wanted to direct them, do the martial arts, star in them. I'd been training in in, in Hapkido and Wing Chun for a while at that point, um, so I could defend myself in the streets, which I did, um, and that put an end to that particular gang um, uh, picking on me. Um, and I went with a charity called Project Trust. Um, for any of your younger listeners, I think they've raised the age now to twenty five. Actually, Project Trust, they're a charity, and what you do is you, they, they give you the, the the means to raise money. You raise the money, you choose the country, they send you out for a year. That's the challenge. You go out for a whole year, unsupported. Um, I was 18 when I did it. You can do it as, as young as 16, right? Crazy, crazy fools doing this stuff at 16, I can tell you. Um, and I traveled out to a little village called Jingning um, to, to teach English in a high school and studied Kung Fu in a temple for a year um, and made this little film uh, called Anger, which is lost, unfortunately, now. Um, and I remember it was quite heartbreaking because I took out the camera that I'd been given. Um, I'd made another film on it uh, in between. And halfway through filming, or no, actually near the end of filming Anger, it broke irreparably. And we lost all the footage for the film. Um, so I had to go around knocking on Chinese doors. <laughs> asking to borrow a camera um which somebody let me have somebody let me borrow a camera it was great it was one of the teachers in the schools like yeah take this um and we reshot the whole film and then we're filming this fight sequence at this temple right and this is the chinese work ethic they're incredible out there right we we went to go we planned to film this this fight scene over two days because it was, it was a long fight sequence and we, we did the first half we went home came back the next day and they had repainted the whole temple a different color Oh, no, and so your shots to, would have been off. So we had to start the whole sequence again. We <laughs> 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 took the whole film in it, uh, the whole sequence in the day. That was fun. <laughs> so yeah, that was it. Was it was, it was interesting. I, I went out there um, to study kung fu. Uh, made what was I'm really sad the film was gone because it was my first probably good film. Um, and and then came back, and I think at that point I made the decision that I just wanted to direct and write actually i didn't like writing at the time that's a lie i wanted to direct um rather than act so that's sick that, that i can't believe you and obviously i know you went to, over to china and stuff but that's such a good story of like you know where you've come from to where you are now and stuff and i think it's just highly motivating more than anything and I think if it, any listeners out there who are struggling stuff with anything at the minute mm. there and just keep battling and I think you're like a prime example of that, James. You should be extremely proud. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the way the way that I look at it is, um, you know, would you get on an aeroplane if you didn't know where it was going or it had enough fuel to get there? And I think a lot of time people do that. Um, and you are, you do get to the point where you're going to run out of fuel. Um, and, and that does happen for a lot of people. And, so, and, and, and life can sometimes try to bring you down at the same time. And I think what's really important to understand is that 
by giving yourself some kind of direction. It doesn't have to be that you know you want to be this or you know you want to be that, but 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 spending time on yourself to to move yourself forward is sometimes that first step to kind of go in. Um, there is something better. Um, and I was really lucky that it kind of it happened upon me um, via a Channel 5 Jackie Chan movie marathon. And a lot of people um, don't get that lucky. Um, but one of the main themes of, of, of the show, as you know, was exploring mental health in men and how, you know, the lead character gets a chance at having a direction in life. And when he takes it, it improves all facets of his life um and it's hard uh, and i will i will go so far as to say that since then i have really struggled at points um i've nearly given up several times and not not one of those oh, i give up but like full-on given nearly given up on several occasions um and sometimes just taking that breather and going right reevaluating, taking a step back and and and, and giving yourself a moment to evaluate what it is you really want to be achieving. What do you want? Not what don't you want? You know, I don't want to be this. and I don't want to be that. You're still focusing on what you don't want. Focus on what do I want to achieve? And it can be something as massive as wanting to be a filmmaker to as small as deciding that, you know, there's a piece of technology coming out in a few months and you're going to work towards getting it because that'll make you feel a little bit happy. You know, it's, I, I, I'm a big believer that, that having something to work towards is a great way of, of, of bringing yourself out of a difficult time because you're focusing on something positive um which is i think it's quite a powerful thing no it definitely is and i think you mentioned one of the sort of themes in ringside is, is male mental health but for those listeners who haven't seen ring uh, ringside what is it about and what's your role um in 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 making the film of ringside or the, the so, drama so i say ringside so ringside is a six-part tv show um i like to call it manchester rocky um which is really ironic given that um the lead character is from liverpool but you know nobody's perfect (laughs) 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 um and i noticed that that joe uh, hasn't responded to that he's probably left and is currently on his way around (laughs) um so so um and it's about a, a young lad um who's very similar to the kind of kids that i've spent years teaching um they have their own socioeconomic uh, situations in chad's case it's uh, a neglectful mother um a, an, an absent father um who took his own life um school he's so angry that, that he gets kicked out of every school he's ever been to he doesn't have any friends because he can't hold a relationship. Um, and the only really positive um, influence in his life who, who's fighting to see the best in him, he keeps on hurting uh, emotionally. Um, and and he, he's really struggling to find his way as a 15-year-old in a world that just seems like it, it just wants, it, it wants him to fail. Um, he gets into crime because he sees no other way out. Um, via a county lines gang and county lines is a horrific crime in which criminals target young people who are from a vulnerable background um, give them things befriend them and then tell them that they now owe them um, money or um, work and get them to go out and sell drugs and, and we've had cases of, of children from in Manchester as young as 11 being found in, in, in Blackpool selling drugs for gangs 
Um, and he he sees the glamour in it, most certainly. He sees the chance of earning money and, and, um, and giving giving himself the life that he wants, but somebody very important to him is hurt um, in the process, and he he has to make a decision as to whether he's going to continue it or take hold of a lifeline that is given to him. Uh, and he decides to take hold of it, but the consequences are that that past life wants him back. Um, and it's a film about the conflict uh, that he goes through in trying to improve uh, his life through boxing. Um, uh, and I wrote it, produced it, directed it, shot it, lit it, edited it, did the color grading um, on a budget of a thousand pounds of my own money um, wow. over the course of about two and a half years. Yeah. That is, as someone who's worked with it, obviously on ringside, it was, um, it was an unbelievable experience for me because it's my first time being on set and I can't thank you enough, James, for giving me that chance to um, really like get, you know, give me my first real role and stuff. And someone who's worked with you, you, you are going to go really, really far. You know, thank you, man. You know exactly what you want. You're well driven. Um, you give people a chance on set and stuff, and you have a lot of fun as well. Don't let her, you know, we had a lot of laughs. Well, I certainly did. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, it was just it was boss. Um, it's such a nice environment, and I think like the kind of director you are, you're so very well focused and. You know exactly what you want, but you also have that like nice bit of free, um, free roam for the actors if they want to try it a little bit different, or you know. And it was honestly such a pleasure to work with you. I've just got, to, I want to say that on record. You know what I mean? No, so, no, no, I appreciate yeah. that, and then thank you. I mean, I remember the first conversation we had. Um, I was sat on the tram, not yeah, even knowing I was, yeah, yeah. and um, we were talking about the show. And at that point, I had no idea if it was ever even going to work. Um, Full disclaimer, um, and I think <laughs> I, I thought this was just me until quite recently when I saw a documentary on Steven Spielberg, and not in any way, shape, or form saying I'm anything like Steven Spielberg. Um, but every time that I went on set, it's really funny you mentioned, you know, I knew exactly what I wanted, and that's a complete and utter lie. Um, <laughs> because actually... I think the art of directing is oftentimes making it look like you know what you're doing when actually you haven't got a bleeding clue. Um, and I remember I was watching um, this documentary about Steven Spielberg and he says this line in it. He says, you know, every day, even now I walk on set and I'm like, oh God, I don't know what I'm doing. People are going to think I'm, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and then somehow you just kind of get into it. And it's quite nice to hear that even somebody like him has that same doubt. You know, I think you just got to know that you want it to be good and, 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 um, having a great cast and a small but great uh, crew. You know, we, we had you, um, we had Sarah, who was a great, you two together gave me goosebumps. Like when we uh, had to reshoot that, those sequences uh, in, in the flat, I was, I, was, I was secretly really, really pleased, not because I wanted to improve it, because I didn't think it needed improving. I just wanted to see it again. <laughs> <laughs> because it was, it, was, it was absolutely fantastic. And, um, you've got to let the people that you work with have freedom. Like micromanaging is for corporations and it doesn't even work for them. Um, you know, if, if you trust people enough to be on your team, it's because you trust them, you know, to make those choices. Um, you know, people like Joel, for example, who um, went above and beyond to c collect sound that I didn't even know I needed. Um, 
to you know the cast who like yourself came onto the set with, with, with a slew of ideas and, and the way that I tend to direct um is I I let the, the the actors go off and do stuff first before I even get involved in the directing. Like by that point, all of you know kind of my vision for the whole show. We've had a discussion about the character. We've we've had a back and forth. You get what I'm trying to do, um, and you've had time to spend with your character that I haven't had time to spend with your character because I'm dealing with everything else, and I'm dealing with all the characters, and I'm trying to figure out why that light over there won't work, um, or you know. Oh, oh God, I've, I've forgotten one of my cards or, or I've left the lens cap on, which happened more times than I'd like to admit. Um, and um, <laughs> the amount of times I've said to you, oh, could we just do one more? Because I've forgotten to put the card in. Um, <laughs> and um, so, so what I would do at the beginning of each day is I would turn up, um, set up the equipment and the actors would come on and I'd say to them, just go and do a, a line read. Uh, you know, just make sure you, you know your lines. I know damn well they know their lines. They're, they're consummate professionals. I'm not for a second thinking they're going to come in and go, oh, uh, do we have a script today? You know, I don't <laughs> think that's going to happen. But what it is, is it's a chance just to give the, 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 the actors the, the unpressurized freedom. Because as soon as they start, they get together and they're in costume, um, a performance starts to emerge. And as soon as a, as a director, I come in and, and I give my, my ideas, I take that. Um, there's a great book for anybody who wants to read it called Leaders Eat Last by Simon Sinek and it's the idea that as, as a leader the second that you start to give your vision people will begin to um, modify their own internal vision based on that get their ideas first and if at any point it's not on point you know we, we explore it we, dis we discover where it is we need to be and we bring um, we, we bring the performance to where it needs to be. That happened very rarely on the, on this one because everybody just got the, their characters and, and got what it was we were trying to do. Um, and and what ends up happening actually is you end up with a performance quicker. We were finishing days three hours early sometimes because you guys had had the chance to explore. Uh, and it, it sounds like it should take a lot longer doing it that way. But if I'm having to micromanage every line, it's taking it's taking ages. If you have a chance to organically figure it out and every now and again I go, I feel like maybe we should go in this direction, um, you get to a performance that's ready to shoot super quick and then you shoot it and it's fantastic. Yeah, I, I think I've, I've watched it and I think my favourite performance was um, your appearance on Dine Me, Date Me. <laughs> I, thought was, I thought it was brilliant, James. <laughs> yeah, so that's me and my partner, Jenny, um, <laughs> who... Um, I, I, I want to put on record um, without her support at points during this, I would not have finished ringside because there were points where I thought I can't do this. I was in a ball in the corner crying, going, this is, this is too much for me. This is not meant for me. Like, I can't do this. And she is uh, wonderful at tough love, you know, a quick slap on the back of the head and like, come on, James, get yourself up and let's get this done, you know? Um, and... I wanted to do originally for that sequence, the plan was to do like, a, uh, I'd written um, a Love Island parody um, to do right. with connections. You know, um, you know, I think we've got like a connection you and me. What do you mean like, what kind of connection? Yeah, I'm not talking like a Bluetooth connection where like if you go 10 meters away, like I don't like you anymore, but like a proper Wi-Fi connection, like, you know, like GPS connection we got, you know, it was, it was this whole thing. And I thought it was funny, but your lack of laughter tells me I did a really good job <laughs> in not putting that into the script. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you thank you jenny <laughs> again 
because she didn't laugh either when I pitched it to her. <laughs> I pitched my stuff to her because I she's, she's wonderfully honest. Um, if she likes something, she gets goosebumps. And I'm like, I'm onto something. And if she doesn't, she's just like, James, you're going to ruin your career. Um, <laughs> but she, um, she actually came up with the idea. We were sat watching, um, uh, what's that show that's very similar? Um, not... Um, I've forgotten the name of it now. Anyway, it, it, basically we ripped off Dinner Date. That was the one. We ripped okay, off Dinner Date. We were watching it and she was like, wouldn't it be really funny if um, we did a Dinner Date scene with me and you? And I was like, that would be great. I can play this really pompous idiot, like who's dead arrogant that nobody likes, and you can reject me. And she was like, so like in real life? <laughs> um, <laughs> because when we went for our first not really date, I went in with the whole, yes, I'm a filmmaker and people get me coffee. And, blah, blah, and she was like, oh, good God. <laughs> um, and she's still with you? Well, yeah, because we knew each other from high school. So she kind of right. gave me a bit more of a chance, plied me with a bit more wine so I'd chill the F out. Um, and uh, ended up, we ended up getting on really well and we've been together ever since. But um, we thought we'd use that moment of like, mm. uh, of me being an arrogant fool um and nearly losing out on a on a very wonderful young woman um and uh her, you know like how how big big actors have their diva demands like oh I, I i yeah like i only want like the red m&ms cut in half you know something like that um hers was and um, teddy bear has to be in the movie which is our bunny rabbit um which is why then teddy bear our child our, our fairy child was also in that scene. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm going to ask you this one, James. I think who are yep. your inspirations inside and outside of film? Um, inside of film, Steven Spielberg, um, Robert Rodriguez, because um, he has this that mentality of, of uh, there's no such thing as a lack of resources, only a lack of resourcefulness in the way that he makes his movies. Um, I love Zack Snyder. Um, yeah. Have you watched I, his latest I, Justice League film? Um, yes, we 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 put up the the cinema screen in the living room and the projector, and we sat and we watched that. Let me tell you, you can eat a lot of popcorn in four hours. <laughs> four hours, <laughs> so long. It is, but you know what I love about it? What I love it more than the film because the film is great. Is I love the the, the win. You know, Zack Snyder is one of those people who who's often told he can't do stuff or he's not good enough i mean look at his films are incredible like warner brothers were saying you know this is not good enough and that's not good enough and taking bits of his movies away and really messing with his stuff and he came came back victorious and said no nope, i'm going to make the movie that i want to make um and he did and i think that was really amazing really inspirational that you know years after the film was done and dusted he fought for what was right and against a, a huge juggernaut that could easily have just dismissed him. So that was, that was incredible. Um, outside of film, um, I would say um, a lot of them, a lot of motivational speakers, uh, people like Simon Sinek, um, people like Chris Voss, um, and really anybody who, who has achieved a lot, um, through adversity you know i'm constantly finding new people trying to go wow you've you've really achieved and, and you, you know use that as my inspiration um yeah have you I heard say, of I, um stephen bartlett i haven't no okay so he is a uh he's a, he's a black kid who grew up 
in Manchester, mm -hmm. dropped out of university, set up a company, and he sold his part of the business for $300 million last year. He now does a podcast and, and he just released a book last week or the week before. I'm reading that book at the moment and it's really, really interesting, James. I highly recommend it. Okay, I will definitely check that out because um, I'm just about to get uh, uh, get finished with um, a book called Ego and Authority, which is about leadership. And it'd be nice to go from something businessy to something inspirational like that. That'd be really cool. Um, but yeah, I just anything that moves moves you forward in terms of inspiration. You know, we, uh, me and Jenny, are big on the law of attraction. Um, and people eye roll. Like, like like the biggest eye rolls when you tell them about the law of attraction, because of course there's this whole kind of mystical wizardness to it. Um, I don't necessarily believe in the mystical wizardness, but I do believe in the power of focus. And if you are focusing on positive, you will see positive. And the way that I, the way that I, I view it is like this. Like, let's say you're on a diet um, and you say to yourself, I'm not going to eat chocolate, I'm not going to eat chocolate, I'm not going to eat chocolate. And you go to a buffet, what's the first thing that you see? Chocolate. It's a chocolate. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas if you're focusing on, I want to eat super healthy, uh, but have tasty food, you start thinking about combinations of the healthy food that you can start to have. Yeah. It's about focus. I don't necessarily think it's always the universe is giving you healthy food because uh, the healthy food is there. It exists, but your focus shifts. Um, I don't want to get too bogged down into, into the science of it, but um, there's a part of the brain called the reticular activating system. And, and um, it's the part of the brain which filters what you take on board based on your beliefs and your thought processes um you know you've got a, a woman called mildred for example who wins a game of bingo and she says oh i never win anything it's like really in your 60 odd years you've never won anything you didn't win a certificate at high school you never won uh, a scratch card you, you know you never won uh, um, a raffle in your entire life you're telling of course they, they've won but what happens the 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 uh, reticulated activating system has has removes the memories because it doesn't fit in with their beliefs um and so when you focus on positive your your that filter in your brain starts to filter out the negative it starts to turn negatives into positives it makes your, your brain more flexible in terms of doing that and this is all scientifically proven um and so um when you're focusing on motivational speakers um, we printed our own um uh positive affirmations and and put them around the house not because we we're all like look how amazing life always is but at least just having the focus means that you are more likely um to succeed than if you are focusing on the negatives um because if you're just looking at walls you know you, you're not going to want to try and smash through them yeah you talk about sort of leadership books and leadership people but how do you approach sort of delegation? Because you being a director, you mentioned earlier that you're worrying about a light or you're worrying about a lens mm. cap or you're worrying about this. You've got so much on your plate on mm. a set. So how do you deal with delegation? How do you sort, sort that out in your mind? Um, for for, for my, my previous ones, I haven't. and Not because I haven't wanted to, um, but because at the level that I'm at, to find people that I can trust consistently is really, really difficult. Um, now on, um, on ringside, I had Joel, um, who did the sound. And that was a big one for me to let that go. Um, because it, it gave me so much freedom. Um, and he was so good at what he did. And I also had Erin Staples who played Katie, um, in the show. She, 
just started by helping me move lights and, and do that kind of idea. And that was really useful. I think um, moving forward, when I start getting the budgets that I want to get, delegation will be less of a, I want you to do this and you to do that, but just employing people who are just so good at what they do, I have no option but to go, no, you absolutely have to do that. I could, you are like 10 times better than I would ever be at that. Like, why do I want to light this when you guys like can light anything using nothing? Like, yeah, and I think that's, that's, that's for me the biggest thing. You make people feel appreciated and you also, uh, you, you look for people who are better at it than you are. And then you let them do it. Um, and direction for me isn't about telling people what to do. And I've, I've seen directors who are like that before and it really bugs me. It's about having a vision, communicating that vision and saying to the people who work with you, help me get that vision. You know, use some of your expertise and maybe even give me some fresh ideas. Um, and the first time that I did that properly was with Joel on Ringside when he was doing the sound. For the first episode, I filled the first episode with the sounds, type of sound that I wanted. And I said, this is the design that I want to go for. When he got through with episode one, he had put in so many great ideas and done so many fantastic things I could never have even thought of that I didn't do that with episode two. I just gave him the episode and I said, do it. Show me something cool. And only once or twice did I go, maybe you've pushed that a little bit too far. Uh, but that's always part of the exploratory process. Sometimes you have to push it to kind of bring it back. Um, and it was just so nice knowing that he was just doing that and make once a week we'd meet up at the studio and he'd show me what, he, what he'd done and we'd talk about it and we'd have a laugh and I'd give him some notes if there were notes needed and we'd talk about what was coming next and then I'd leave and I'd leave him to do it for a week and then I could just get on with the editing and the colour grading. Um, I want that freedom again, but I want it on a, on a greater level. You know, uh, when I'm on set, I want to be directing and, and DOP um, because a lot of directors, Zack Snyder does that and he's well cool. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's um, so cool. <laughs> he is, yeah. Like some of the, when, when he's doing, uh, when, if you've seen the behind the scenes of the Justice League, when he's doing the extra scene with Batman and the Joker, he's just got somebody hands him a camera. Okay, let's go. Just hand the camera back. Um, but I want gaffers who can light the scene how I want. I want a sound team who can give me the sound that I want. I want to be able to have a makeup team who are just so good at what they do that I go, this is what I'm looking for design-wise, make it better, you know? I don't want to see it like delegation. And I think that's, that's the shift that I've had recently is that I'm not delegating. I'm trusting. I'm bringing people onto my team who I trust, who I know if I give them the freedom, they will fly. And if at any point I just need to bring us back on track, that, that's what my job is, just to kind of go, I love that idea. That's great for something else. For this, I feel like it should be going down this route, you know? Um, and that's what I'm really excited about for my next film, because we are going to have a budget for it, um, that I will be able to build a small team of people that I can just do that with. I'm super excited for that. Definitely, yeah. Definitely. I, I actually had a moment on uh, my last feature film, uh, Invasion Earth, which I did have a great team in team on it was a struggle because of the conditions that we were under um, but the team were incredible um, and I remember on day one um, I, I had a first AD a guy called Ty Hack who is an utter genius with a schedule like that dude got us out so many like scheduling problems when we were like behind and, and got us to finish the film and I remember um, somebody went oh I need some electrical tape and I went, okay I'll go get it and he stopped me in front of the whole crew and went 
the director does not get the electrical tape. I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that was really, that was an interest. That, that was the first time that I kind of went through, through, through that process. But um, yeah, for the next one, I'm really excited to have a proper team. Yeah, definitely. Talking about Invasion Air from sci-fi films then. Yeah. Could, um, create like a classic film or anything like that. What kind of film would you make and why? A classic film. So we're we talking classic in terms of like a classic old school genre. Yeah, really? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, that's a really good question. I mean, I love sci-fi. Science fiction is a passion of mine. Um, so good psychological sci-fi. You know, a yeah. proper like Event Horizon type or the Thing. You know, the old school practical effects, real sets, no CGI people just putting the craft into making a movie. My next one is going to be a medieval Game of Thrones Witcher-style horror film. Um, and when I was talking to our sales agent about it, they were like, oh, you know, can you get the CGI looking as good as, as we need it to be on the budget we want? And I said yes, and then realized I didn't want to do that. Everything is going to be practical in this film. We're going to do a proper um, stop-motion Harryhausen-style skeleton battle in this thing you know i want every creature to be makeup or models um or animatronics i want everything to feel real because it is real and i think that would be so less genre and more really good old school practical filmmaking high concept horror or high concept science fiction where everything that you see on screen has been shot yeah that's a good answer when are you looking on filming that then, James? Do you know yet? Or obviously with COVID and stuff at the minute, it's hard, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, that's, I, I'm, not, and I'm not sure is the, the, the answer to that question. Like I say, we've just got the sales agent on board. I'm working with a writer for the first time, which, oh my goodness, Ooh. I wish I'd done that on, on Ringside because um, you know my penchant for overwriting. <laughs> um, I don't know if you remember that scene in the boxing ring when she gives you the list of things to do. And you were both, I could see you both doing your absolute hardest to get through my dialogue. <laughs> and I stopped you halfway through and I went, I've overwritten this, haven't I? And you went, yes. <laughs> yes, you have. <laughs> yes, you have. Um, and that scene didn't even make it into, I mean, then we, we condensed it and the scene didn't even make it into the final cut because it just wasn't necessary. Um, and that's really interesting because I've got somebody challenging me and my ideas now, right from the writing process, which is brilliant. Um, and, you know, I'm coming up with an idea and they're saying, oh, but how does that fit in with this? Or wouldn't this be a cool idea? Or I'm giving him pages to go off and write and he's bringing them back. And I'm going, oh, my goodness, that's even sicker than what I thought. You need help, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, so we nearly finished the script for that. Oh, nice. um, and then we're going to go out and try and find a budget of 500000 to a million. Um, I've got some really interesting people helping me with that. Um, and I'm going to get that money. Um, and we're going to go out and we're going to make a really, I mean, it's a really good film. Um, I got a couple of celebrity filmmakers, uh, actors that I really want for the film that I'm going to approach. Um, fingers crossed I get at least one or two of them. Um, and yeah, see if we can get some of the old, the old crew back. <laughs> get the band um, back together. Get, get some of the band back together. Yeah, no, I've got yeah, um, back. Oh, absolutely, yeah. 
um, and and make something just some of the sequences that we've written are going to um, tear an audience apart Ooh. emotionally, physically. Um, it's it's a hell of a movie idea that, that we've got. Um, and it's my answer to what I kind of wish they'd done with like to, the Tomb Raider adaptation um, in terms of the level of challenge. Mm, uh, in terms of the level of challenge that I think the main character should have gone through. Um, and just that, that love of things like Game of Thrones. And, you know, I even mentioned the old Errol Flynn movies and the old Harryhausen films in the script. It's going to be really good fun. Sounds good. I can't wait. Yeah, you mentioned um, earlier how you like sort of sci-fi films. So what do you like about that genre? What sort of attracts you to it? Because I mean, you mentioned that when you were like six or five, did you say, James, you went to see Jurassic yeah. Park for the first time? Yeah. yeah. So the, the, I mean, there's two answers to that question. One is the science fiction community. Having spent a lot of time uh, working at conventions, meeting stars from Star Trek, um, uh, Star Wars, uh, Doctor Who and, and kind of seeing the passion behind the fan base and the people who work within that genre um, is really inspiring. But the thing I love most about science fiction is the ability to explore the human condition from a very unique space. You know, you say Star Trek to people and the first thing that most people who've never seen Star Trek will go, beam me up, Scotty, live long and prosper. Right, <laughs> which of course is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. It just of course is awesome, but they don't realize the level of human storytelling that's laid underneath the fantasy element, and it can only exist in that way because of the fantasy element. You know, when you've got episodes where, you know, Data, uh, who's an android, wants to understand what fatherhood feels like, so he makes a child. Um, unfortunately that child is aging too quickly and he has to go through feeling the love of being a father and then losing a child within a day you know yeah. that's heartbreaking stuff that's incredible storytelling when you look at quantum leap um and there's a brilliant episode in that where he leaps into the body of a black man um during segregation america um, and has to experience racism um from the perspective of somebody who knows it's unacceptable because that that segregation no longer exists. Um, you know, when you're when you're watching these these incredible stories play out um, in a way that is fun and cool um, because of the technology and space battles and all that kind of stuff, but underneath there's always this really wonderful chance to tell a human story, um, and I love it for that. Um, it makes you think and it, it thrills you at the same time. Um, and I think that's why science fiction has always really kind of resonated with me. Um, it's probably why, and this will split the room, it's probably why I'm slightly more of a, um, a Star Trek guy than a Star Wars guy. It's probably why I'm marginally more DC currently with the way their films are going than I am Marvel. You know, Marvel's got the cool stuff, but then you've got that dark human storytelling of Man of Steel and yeah, Batman v Superman um, and the Suicide Squad, which could have been amazing um, had the studio not gotten involved. Um, I, yeah, I, I just, I love sci-fi for that. It's a chance to be cinematic as well, you know, 
I would love to do a, a, a really big, high concept, psychological science fiction film that I've already written. Um, but don't have the budget for. <laughs> uh, we can see that in your filmmaking, and definitely in in Ringside, there's a human element to it. I was emotionally invested in Chad and his story, and how his mother was just vile and such a disgusting person to treat <laughs> her son like that. It was just it, I was hooked from the beginning. It was yeah, you can definitely see it in your influences and the way you make films. Yeah, and I think with, with the mother uh, character, a, a lot of people have, have said that she's vile, but there wouldn't, there's nobody like that in the world. And actually, I've, I've heard everything that you hear her say to Chad during a parental meeting as a teacher, I have heard said to a child. Wow. Um, I have witnessed parents like that now i want to go out there on the record and say 99.9 percent .9 of all the parents i have ever met in my job are wonderful supportive people who just want the best for their children regardless of where you teach i've taught in some of the most difficult schools in the country um and nine times out of ten the parents just want the best for their kids and i've also worked in schools where uh they're very affluent and the parents have not been great at all um, and abusive in different ways. Um, but the reason I think that people connect with Chad so much is because these are the kids that I connect with on a day-to-day. -day. They're the ones that challenge me on a day-to-day. On a -day. They're the ones that, um, that will behave in a way which any normal school, and the school that I work at is great for this, any normal school would get rid of, but we try our best to keep hold of because we, we know that there's more. We know that there's something there. And we've got to uncover that. Um, and I really wanted to do a, a show with Ringside. I wanted it to, to be a chance for other people to uncover that in children from those backgrounds as well. And, and to stop just seeing the behaviour and, and start to see yeah. the person. Because a person is not their behaviour. A behaviour is a symptom of their circumstance or their mental health. And it's not an excuse. It is never an excuse. And I make that very, very clear in the show. But nothing excuses the bad things that Chad does in this show. We're not, I'm not asking the audience to forgive him. I'm just asking them to give him a second chance. And when he, when he takes that second chance to, you know, to, to, to praise him for that, because I have seen kids. I mean, Chad is based on a young person that I met um, and knew who was very much like Chad and then took up boxing at Jimmy Egan's gym. And I didn't recognize him by the time he got to year 10 um, because he was given the chance. Um, you know, I want to show those factors behind. There's also as well um, a bit of a jibe in there um, at people who blame video games for the violence in children. Um, there's a scene in it. I don't think I explained this to you, actually, um, when we did the scene, Joe, um, because I, I, um, I, I didn't feel it was pertinent to the performance, um, but it was definitely in the back of my mind. And there's a game where you're playing Mortal Fighter 10. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I actually wanted, I could have had him playing video games. The reason I didn't give him a console and give him video games at the beginning was because a lot of parents blame violent video games for their kids being violent, uh, whilst then, you know, being uh, neglectful to them or, or, or whatever it is that you know, they like to blame um, everybody else. Um, and um, the reason I put that scene in whilst he's improving 
was because games are fun and don't create violence in young people. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, there's no correlation it, between the two. I've, well, I've I mean, if studies. You, yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's, there's a couple of studies that um, I, I got challenged on, actually, by uh, a senior member of staff at the school that I worked at, and they were like, studies show that, that video games cause violence. And I was like, which studies? Tell me the university or the institution that carried the study out the person who led the study, what were the variables, what were the test conditions, and what were the outcomes? Oh, no, but studies. And there's actually, uh, and they, they can't. And uh, they challenged me to do the same. And I'm like, well, I came prepared. Um, you know, Oxford University did a really interesting study, actually. They wanted to find out, um, because there had been studies that showed that a small amount of aggression increase whilst playing video games was had been it was about a 15 percent increase in, in the levels but it was equal to or less than that of people watching sports and nobody blames sports for aggression and it's literally seconds it's it's you play the game oh i'm annoyed you watch a game of football oh we lost right it's yeah. the same thing and so this um i'm not going to say the the professor's name because i will he's a, it's a polish name and i've got too much respect for him as an individual to to to, to murder his name um but he's one of the head of researchers at um at oxford university and did a study where he wanted to see whether or not the the that hit of aggression actually even had anything to do with the violence in the game so he did this study where he um he got 50 students and 25 of these students played a game called tetris you know that really violent video game that everybody plays and goes, I want to headbutt people after playing. Yeah, that one. Of course. Yeah, um, we all know that. Which, yeah, uh, which is um, programmed to give you the correct piece 70% of the time to make it beatable. He then gave 25, uh, uh, 25 of the, the students a game called Bastet, which looks exactly the same as Tetris, except it is designed to give you the wrong piece 70% of the time. Now, when I read this, I could feel my blood pressure rising. <laughs> and what he found actually was that the link uh, was at, was more to do with the frustration level um in regards to the playing of the game whether it's accessible or not oh i can't play this game the controls are rubbish than it was to do with i'm playing mortal Kombat and i've just ripped somebody's spine out um so yeah there's a little bit of a drive to that um that blame culture within within the show um I can't remember what the original point was, but I thought it was quite interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, having talked about how your history and getting into filmmaking, do you have any advice for young filmmakers out there who are just starting out? And yeah, absolutely. Uh, go make films. That's yeah, it. Just go and do it. Yeah, that's just, what I just always get it, say. Yeah. Just, just, just get it done. Um, I, I run this um, this course called Three Shot Film School, and um, the challenge of Three Shot Film School is when you finished. Um, the lessons that I teach within it, you have to go out and make a short film and you're only allowed three shots. You can cut between those shots as many times as you want. So you can do a whole feature film with those three shots if you really wanted to. And those shots can be as long as you want them to be. They can move, they can, you know, can do whatever, but you can only use three separate setups, three separate shots, and you have to go out and make a film. What's really great about that is it makes you think about those three shots because you, you, you got to tell a story through those three shots, right? Um, now, young people are really lucky nowadays. Oh, you young people and your <laughs> luck. Um, in that they have a 4K camera in their pocket. Pretty much every single one of them does. And if they don't, they know somebody who does have a 4K camera in their pocket because we have mobile phones, right? Uh, I shot a, a short film on my iPhone to prove that this could be done to a really cinematic level. 
So there's not even the excuse that I had, you know, get some lamps in your house uh, to do some lighting techniques if you really want to um, but make something. You've got the technology. You've got everything that you require. Go out with your mates and make something uh, and be okay with it being not very good. So, um, or, or, or learning something or it being amazing. Um, so what I would recommend is the following to make, because we need practical advice. Um, use your phone, download Adobe Rush, which is a free editing software by Adobe for your mobile phone, which works very similar to Premiere. It's really simple to use. It's a beautiful piece of editing equipment for a mobile phone. And you can literally shoot and edit your film on your phone. Don't have music? Go onto YouTube, screen record some music from YouTube and put in just the audio to your edit. You've got some music. Do the same with sound effects. If you can't afford to go out and buy loads of music, you know? Um, do whatever it takes. Be resourceful. That You don't need money. You don't need the best camera. You, you, you don't need... Um, huge crew you don't need any of that stuff you need you a story a few friends and a mobile phone you can go you can make a whole film yeah adding to that i had a dm last week asking for podcast advice and i said exactly what you said james is just do it it's it more than likely the first couple is going to be awful but you've got mm. to be okay with that and you've got to be okay that you are going to fail because you are starting out and this is a brand new experience, but the more you do it and the more you get experience and the more you do something, the better you will get. I listened back to the first couple of episodes I did of this podcast. Oh my God, James, <laughs> it was awful. <laughs> it was so bad. <laughs> yeah, you even got podcast wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the more I, the more I did it, the better I got. And I'm hoping in a year's time, I'll be even better. But you that's the, exactly, exactly the same advice I gave to someone who, who DM me saying, look, I, I want to start a podcast. Any advice? Just do it. Yeah. Just yeah. simply do it. And I think Joe will say, if you want to get into acting, just do it. You just got to yeah. do it. I think one of the best things I have ever seen, and it's really resonated with me, is put yourself out your comfort zone. And that's when you'll truly learn. Mm. that just by just saying just do it that yeah. will ultimately get you out of your comfort zone and you will learn and you'll 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 just take everything in and i think you've just got to start you've just got to as, as you said you've just got to do yeah it. and i think what we need to be careful of as well um and i just want to pick up on on the word fail there because i think there's there's a cultural sh shift in the way that we we code failure um and we see it as this really bad thing um but if you watch a toddler playing with lego or me playing with Lego, okay. um, you know, they get it wrong, they'll knock it down and they'll try again. And I think what's important to understand is there is no failure, only feedback. And actually, yeah. if you've done something that you're not happy with, don't get, don't get rid of it. In fact, focus on it a little bit. Figure out what was wrong and learn something from it. Um, and I think that people are so scared of failing and getting it wrong and looking stupid or, um, or feeling like they, they, they weren't good enough. And I think failure could be, if you choose it to be, incredibly empowering. Um, there are things in ringside that I would do differently. I'm not going to go back and go, oh, my God, I hate ringside because I, I did this wrong or I did that wrong. But I'm certainly going to take those to my next project um, rather than um, 
you know, rather than 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 obsess over how I have failed at this particular point. When I made Invasion Earth, that film was pretty terrible. Like I don't know if you've seen it, and if you haven't, don't worry. Um, <laughs> you know, it is available for free on Amazon Prime, and oh, free is about what I will pay for it right now. Um, I knew what I wanted to achieve, I just didn't, and I learned from that, and I applied that to Ringside, and Ringside was better. With uh, the things that I've learned in Ringside, I'm going to apply to the next movie, and that will be better, and I'll be doing that my whole life. Um, so don't be afraid. Most people, most people don't start because they have this gut feeling inside them that they might get it wrong, and they think to themselves, if I can line up all the information, if I can, if, if I can prepare myself, then I'll be ready, and when I do it, it'll be perfect, it'll be amazing, it'll be so good, I can get my myself to that point no it's not going to happen just get it done because you will get it wrong and that's awesome the only mistake yeah. in life that you will not learn from is the one that kills you Ooh. oh <laughs> I'm putting we should just end, we should just end the podcast now yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was sick no, that was, uh... yeah I, so I have this I, yeah i have the same mantra i've i always look at life as i've never failed in my life i've either won or i've learned that's yeah. it in which case you have also won <laughs> yeah exactly yeah um because they say knowledge is power so if by gaining knowledge you're just becoming more powerful you know um and i think as well you know, don't overwhelm yourself. A lot of people burn themselves out really quickly. Um, I nearly did this on ringside. Um, when I was scheduling it, I was only just learning to schedule. One of the questions that you asked on your thing, which you probably are going to ask, but because it's in my head now, was, you know, what advice would I give a 16-year-old version of me? And it would be learn the business side of things, learn the organizational side of things, because I had to learn that from scratch on ringside. And I overwhelmed myself uh, the first time. Um, and I ended up by, uh, breaking it down into these bite-sized chunks. Um, don't be afraid to chunk things. Small chunking is really, really important, actually, I think. Giving yourself small steps. Um, I call it my power hour. Um, if I start to achieve, if I wanted to start to achieve something, I'll give myself an hour where I focus on learning something or doing something for that, that particular project. Ultimately, that spirals and becomes a power three hours um, because you, once you get that momentum and that, that feeling, you keep going. But there was one point when um, I got so frustrated um, with my inability to schedule and organize. Um, there's a scene in, in Ringside where he's hitting himself in the head in the mirror, and I, I resorted to that because I was yeah. like, I can't do this. What, 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 what am I going to do? Um, and I decided in the end to take a step back break it into small chunks and make it manageable you know um if you've got a big goal brilliant move towards it but you don't jump up a ladder you have to climb it and and uh sometimes you'll climb two or three steps sometimes you'll fall down it, it doesn't really matter you'll get there in the end but, um i think be kind to yourself um and 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 enjoy it and, and the moment i think the moment that you stop enjoying it you need to take a step back and go right give yourself a breather and move forward again you know it doesn't always have to be that you're killing yourself over it yeah yeah joe um says something similar in one of the other podcasts that we did and it's it's, it's definitely it's definitely the same and definitely just take it one step at a time and will smith said you never go out to build a wall because building a wall is too big what you do is you focus on a brick and you lay that brick down as perfectly as you can Make sure it's straight. Make sure there's no chips in it. 
and you do that today. And then tomorrow, you do the same thing. Put a brick down, make sure it's perfect. And then over a couple of days, weeks, months, years, wherever it might be, you'll have your wall and mm. you'll have something that's, that you're proud of. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, reward yourself as well when you, when you reach a goal. People forget to do that a lot. They'll reach a goal and then start work on the next one. No, sit down, yeah. enjoy it. Take a moment. I know? do that. I do that. It's really, I, in yeah. fact, schedule it. I've got um, uh, a diary uh, planner. Um, it's called Freedom Mastering, the, the, the planner. It cost me 50 quid. Best 50 quid I've I spent this year. Um, and it really helps you to chunk out and it, it forces you to think of rewards. So um, let's say my reward for this month, um, my goal for this month, my big goal for this month is to have everything ready to start pitching for money for my next film. And if I get that, my reward is I'm going to buy Resident Evil 8. Okay. Right? So giving myself, but then I've got weekly rewards and I've got daily rewards as well. So if I get this, this, and this done, then I will give myself this reward. Um, it might be a bath. It might be, um, you know, a, a takeout meal. It might be to sit down and play video game for an hour, you know, whatever it is. But, but reward yourself, you know, give yourself a chance to thank yourself. You know, when you get up in the morning, your first thought should be, I'm going to smash it today. I'm going to have challenges, but I'll overcome them. Your last thought at night should be, well done. Yeah. Self-love. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And that, I, haven't, I hadn't been doing that for the longest time. And, and me and Jenny are focusing on that at the moment, of, of really looking after ourselves and giving ourselves that time. And it's made us so much happier all in all um, because we are rewarding ourselves. You know, I... I've, I've got, not today, because um, um, I've had quite a lot on today. Well, actually, no, my reward today was watching Godzilla versus King Kong. It was awful, but I did it. <laughs> Have you seen it yet? No, no it's, not, it's on the list. I've, um, I need to, I've got a massive list of films I need to, I need to watch. Yeah. King Kong I, and uh, Godzilla's on it. The, the way I see it, this is my review. Imagine I've got a King Kong toy, yeah. a Godzilla toy. I've just saved two hours of your life. <laughs> I'll take it off the list then. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, it's it's worth a watch. You know what's really interesting for me? Learn from a learning perspective. It taught me how not to write a movie. <laughs> yeah, because the writing exactly. is appalling. Is it? It's it's all it's all exposition. Mm. It's exposition the movie with a little bit of King Kong and Godzilla fighting each other. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I might make that film actually. Exposition, the movie. <laughs> <laughs> what What I wanted to know is in Ringside, uh, the main character is Chad, played by our very own Joe. What yep. was it like to work with Joe? Um, <laughs> well, it now, I mean, <laughs> it was all right, I suppose. <laughs> He's okay. Um, yeah, I think. That will be I think my best days were the ones where he wasn't on. No, I'm joking. Because um, <laughs> he was on set every day. No, um, he was amazing um, to work with. Um, we did have a joke. There was a, a really funny day when, I don't even remember, Hoodie Gate, uh, Joe. Um, where, and um, I joked to him. I was like, yeah, so um, I'm, I've decided in the next season that um, I'm going to kill you off screen. <laughs> and the first <laughs> scene will be your funeral. But no, it was, it was really you know, The great thing about Joe um, is his energy that he brings to the set, and that's super important. Um, with lead actors, you, you get 
a couple of different types of lead actor and I've worked with various different types. And most of the type you get the one to, it's all about me, I'm the lead, you know? And Joe isn't like that. He, he comes on, with, he, bat, he doesn't come onto set, he bounds onto set with this like youthful energy, um, just ready to just do something awesome. And that in, in those moments actually when I was deflated because I'd spent, you know, these guys were coming on to set. Um, I had spent days and weeks and months before that planning and figuring it out. And at some points I was tired, but having people like Joe come onto the set and be like, right, do this. Yeah, it's <laughs> infectious. It you up. Yeah. And it, it gives you, it gives you that energy when you don't have the energy to move on yourself. And that's what, why, why a good team is really important. You know, you, you can't have an energy vampire on set or in any business. And, and actually what you want is the opposite. You want people who emanate positivity and having that, really really was important you know knowing that he was off rehearsing the fight sequences because he really wanted to get them right and um and and wanting to suggest things and wanting to the performance to be the best was really empowering and i think joe is somebody that i will always work work with um you know i i have a role in my next for him should he want it suited very much to his character um cheeky chappy um maybe a little bit of a ladies man um, <laughs> I wish <laughs> he does. He, he, he'll, he may or may not die, but you know, you can't have it all, can you? <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned earlier about the next season. Is there going to be a season two? I think that's the question um, I wanted to ask. Currently, currently no, um, because I have oh. other adventures uh, that I want to go on. I have a story for season two, I know where it will go, and I'm waiting for those magic sales numbers. Um, because if it makes money, and of course, um, I'll, I'll go into it. It's not all about money. I don't want people to think that I'm just money grabbing. But I think you have, again, I wish I'd learned since 16, film is a business. Yeah. Um, and if you can merge those two things together, people will give you money. They, they give you the money and you go, thank you for the money. I'm going to make something. And then you make more money. And, and then you have a, have a, a, a living making movies. Um, so I, I have I have a season two in mind. It's awesome, um, and it's more of an ensemble piece because I think I've built so many great characters in season one that they should all have room to breathe. Um, and I'd want it to be like a proper, like you know, like the the American twenty three episode seasons. Yeah, like I want it to be proper, um, and uh, that will take a you know a little bit of convincing to get the money for something like that. Um, so right now, no. But merely because right now I couldn't give it the justice that it would need, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Thank you for the kind words as well, James. Honestly, it means a lot. Yeah. No, no worries, man. I mean, as, like I say, it's it's um, people are going to be watching this going, "Oh my goodness, this is just one of those like cringy love fests." But who cares? It is. Get over <laughs> yourselves, people. Yeah. Feel the love. <laughs> yeah, because I I added on to that. Me and Joe met what about a year ago, maybe fourteen yeah. months ago. Yeah, yeah, and but... he was in a managing talent workshop and Joe was a talent. And the thing that I took away from that is his ability to remember lines and to remember a script. Just, I've never seen it before. And then I remember we, I think we added each other on Instagram yeah, and I said yeah, to him, I've got a project and I think you'll love it. And it was for uh, BBC Radio Lancashire and he blew everything out of the water. And I was like, we need to do something. Like we need to work more together. Yeah. 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 And, 
and I mean, I actually think that on my next film, I'm probably just going to like drop some toothpicks on the floor and see if you can count them. Um, <laughs> because he does have a rain man kind of like experience. Because I have this thing. So freaky. Yeah, and I don't know if I did this to you at any point on this film, but I have this thing, it really annoys actors, where I come up with an idea for a huge monologue on the day, um, and I expect <laughs> you just to know it. And Joe would. <laughs> He'd just be like, oh, okay. Other, other, other actors are like, James, what are you doing to me? I was like, I'm just making you earn your paycheck. You're not paying me. Oh, well. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Uh, yeah, just to say anymore, we had to go too big for the screen. Yeah, we need a slightly wider lens. For... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just a bit of a bit. Yeah. Um, oh, uh, okay, um, do, right, okay, let's get more serious now. Do you think the diversity in the media industry has changed in the last 12 months? Absolutely, I think it has to. Um, I'm going to say something super controversial here, right? This is going to be one of those things that, like, makes people, I don't know, burn effigies of me in the street. <laughs> my, my issue is diversity for the sake of diversity. Okay, and so what I mean by that, um, if anybody ever said to me, um, I've got a fund here for black filmmakers. My response would be, that's lovely. Do you have a fund for filmmakers? Um, I think it becomes disingenuous sometimes when it is just done for the sake of being done. If diversity is a celebration of diversity, if you're picking a diverse character because it fits the story and absolutely that's the best way forward, if you're then then that is where it, it should definitely uh, be because society is becoming diverse. And so if you're going to create film and art set in modern society, diversity comes as part of that package. It has to, it can't exist any other way. But if you are making a TV show like Merlin and you're making Guinevere Black um, for no other reason than you want to get a black actress into your show, when if you look historically, that would not have been accurate. Um, I think actually you're doing a disservice to the incredible um, uh, talent within the minority communities. Whereas if, for example, in Ringside, going back to Ringside, um, I chose to make Chad white because that is my experience of the areas that I lived in. And I chose to make the two black characters incredibly positive role models for him because I only know positive role model black people. Yeah. I, I don't know anybody who is black, who is that stereotype that, that, that we are moving away from in the media. So I didn't do that for the sake of doing that. I did it because it felt right for me to do that. Um, for me to have these characters, um, you know, I have in it um, some very, very strong female characters because these characters needed to be the way that they were for Chad to have those those inspirational figures in his life. Um, originally, Simone was a male character. When I cast Lauren, it changed everything, and the character became so much more powerful um, because of what she brought to it. Um, you know, if I was if I was going to do, um, you know, a, a, a film set in I don't know. Um, if I was going to do a film set in Africa, um, I wouldn't put white people into that film for the sake of it. In the same way that if I was going to do 
um, a film about the Nazis, I wouldn't have a black Nazi for the sake of it. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think we need to, I can't wait until we move past the requirement to talk about diversity within film and within the media. When people are cast because they're bloody good at what they do, <clears throat> you know? Yeah. Um, and I, I, want to, I want to get to the point where we stop being surprised when we see, you know, a, a talented Asian actor in a film and go, oh, that, that actor was really good. It's great to see an Asian actor in a film. And we just go, my goodness, that guy was good. Yeah. You know, and that's why they're getting the roles. Um, I want to live in a world where, and this is again why I like things like Star Trek, you know, it's never even mentioned in Star Trek if somebody's black, white, Asian. They just are who they are, unashamedly who they are. Um, and that is either something that adds wonderfulness to the character um, or not. Um, and I, I, really, I really want to get to a point where the discussion, that question that you've just asked me about diversity doesn't even need to be asked. Because yeah, people... I, I've been in yeah. Sorry, I've been in situations where being an Asian man, and I've been in radio stations, and I'm looking around, seeing just white faces, and I'm thinking, am I just here because of the color of my skin, or am I here because I'm qualified, because I work hard, because I'm yeah, I've got yeah. talent, and I'm, I was very, very conscious. That I won't name who they were, but I, I was just super like hyper aware of it, and, and I didn't know why. And I didn't know, maybe it was the way I brought up or the experience I've had, but I was just looking around going, why am I the only brown guy here? Why is yeah, there a yeah, yeah. Do they? Am I, am I here just yeah. because I'm tick are, you, box? are you a tick box? Yeah, and I actually, yeah. I want to get a t-shirt with the word, I'm not a tick box on it. Mm. Um, I just, I think, um, somebody asked me once, are you proud to be black? I found that the, the, the oddest question. And my response was, honestly, I didn't achieve it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was something that, that, that I am. Um, I'm proud of the films I've made. I'm proud of, of um, and this is somebody, this is coming from somebody who's literally been beaten in the street for being black. And, and in my mind, I, I find it just as difficult to understand why I should or why other people see the colour of my skin as an overwhelming positive aspect of my personality in the same way that I don't understand why somebody sees it as a reason to hate me. It, yeah. it's, for me, it's just not a point. <laughs> it, you know, I am James. I am a filmmaker. Uh, I've achieved many things. I have had many life experiences. I have many dreams. And, and I, I know what I want out of life. That, that is the sum of me. Um, and it's not that I have great dreams for a black person or that um, I, um, you know, I, I'm talented for somebody who's brown. I'm just, I, if you see me as talented, I want you to see me as talented. I, don't, I would never want to win a MOBO or, a, you know, anything along those lines because I am me. And that is, that is over, the overriding sense that I have. And I look forward to the point when there are no tick boxes and when nobody's asking me if I'm proud to be this, that, or the other, you know. And I think it, I think it really annoys a lot of people as well because um, 
you hear a lot of people saying, oh, you know, you're, you're allowed to say that you're, you're proud to be black, but you're not allowed to say you're proud to be white. And, and, and I, understand, I understand the frustration there. Um, let's just all get over that aspect and be proud of who we are and what we achieve. 100 percent. i couldn't couldn't agree more we're gonna end the podcast now with some questions about the past present and the future so i'm gonna start off with the past and you sort of touched on it earlier yeah. but what advice would you give a 16 year old james twyman what would you say to him learn business things um i shied away from it for years um jenny actually um challenged challenged me on this several times um because like i say she's great she's my rock and she's my constantly you should never be surrounded by yes people like that's how you become george lucas um and <laughs> well yeah i mean we all saw the phantom menace right um somebody should have said no to me on several occasions on that movie um, yeah, definitely jar jar binks <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and i always shied away from it because it was too hard or too boring or i didn't know anything about it and, and in the past year over lockdown i've been learning about the business side of things more and as a result i got seven offers from seven different um sales agents to buy ringside and i got to make the choice my new film has a sales agent it's not even been written yet and that's because i learned the business side of things you know um if i'd have learned that side of things at 16 i'd probably be well famous by now <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, learn the business side of things. Um, and for anybody who's thinking to themselves, what exactly does that mean? Um, there's a couple of books uh, that I would recommend. One is called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss, and it just tells you how to negotiate terms within business. Um, uh, Ego and Authority uh, by Derek Gaunt is a fantastic book, and anything by Simon Sinek, because he's a genius. Equip yourself. Uh, and then obviously learning about contracts and all that kind of stuff, which is what I'm currently doing. So, yes, that would be my main advice to a 16-year-old me, learn the business side. Okay, okay. Second question, this is the present question. Given the choice of any three people, dead mm -hmm. or alive, yeah, the dinner guest and why? Okay, interesting. So, I'll go with Steven Spielberg, OBS. Um, probably over Zack Snyder because people like Zack Snyder are often influenced by people like Steven Spielberg. And he's like, so he's done so many great Oscar-winning films that I, um, I had the pleasure actually of meeting John Rhys Davis, uh, who played Gimli in Lord of the Rings. And I asked him a question about Steven Spielberg, and I said to him, "Why is it that Steven Spielberg could be given a uh, hundred million dollars and make a piece of absolute masterpiece? Michael Bay can be given that same money and make explosions that are cool, but that's about it." <laughs> Um, and he basically told me um, that it was the storytelling and the passion and the creativity and, and, and the, you know somebody like Michael Bay, whilst he's very good at very very good at what he does, it's about money. Whereas with Steven Spielberg, it's about story. Yeah, and so I'd like to find out a little bit about his process. So that'd be a really really good person to get to know a little bit. Um, probably <laughs> Gandhi. Yeah. Yeah, um, just because everything that he's probably ever said is inspirational, and <laughs> I probably come out of that like the best person I could come out uh, as being. Um, I don't know this. Yeah, I mean, I did. I, I actually had an answer to this because I know you emailed me to, to, to like prepare preparation. <laughs> you <just> preparation <laughs> for things, um, but I kind of changed my mind on them. Um, 
like to say somebody like Quentin Tarantino because he just doesn't care what anybody thinks of him. He just makes the films that he wants to make. Yeah, definitely. I'd love, I'd love to have that, that kind of like, if, if, if I turn around to, uh, to Quentin Tarantino right now and went, I didn't really like him, Glorious Bastards, he'd go, that's nice, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, he, just wouldn't, he just wouldn't care. Um, and I'd like to have that because dealing with criticism is really difficult sometimes. Um, and I, I feel like he knows what he's doing in that respect. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got Steven Spielberg, Mahatma Gandhi, Quentin Tarantino, and James Twyman. Yes, that would be That's not... a dinner party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got this dream uh... of having... Have you ever seen the round tables? Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. 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 I, I, like, I, I um, dream, and actually, when I, when I went through my, my last bout of being really kind of depressed and anxious, which was about five or six years ago now, um, I got myself out of it by watching round tables and imagining and answering the questions with them and imagining that I was on the round table. That's my dream. So that actually that idea of having dinner with famous people is something that like I constantly think about, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. is why it's so difficult for me to choose because there's so many great people I'd like to sit around and have a conversation with. Yeah, yeah it's a tough question. Everyone we've, we've spoken to just struggles so much yeah, with it. Yeah. yeah. So just to finish off this podcast, a question about the future. Where do you see yourself in 10 years' time? So what will James Twyman be doing in 2031? I will uh, have several films in cinemas. Um, I will have left my day job and be pay, uh, making as, more than enough money um, making my films. I will be married to my partner. I will have been for a while. I think at that point, I th all, all the time in my past, I've never really thought about wanting to have children, but now it's definitely something that I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, not just thinking of, but like, I found myself doing this really soppy thing, right? I don't know if, if, if um, anybody um, who watches this show will, will have had the same thing. I've started watching like fathers with their children on trams and going, that looks like something that I could really go in for. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, I can imagine. I'd love to do that. That probably feels amazing, you know? <laughs> I mean, obviously, I'm not seeing the nappies and the crying and the trying to get them to eat their vegetables, but, you know, that's probably all part and parcel of the fun. But, like, I, I really am thinking of, of, of what I would be like as a father and, and really loving that, that perspective. So, yeah, family, beautiful home, married, film career, with films in, in cinemas, and, and just, yeah, really enjoying life in general. What a perfect way to end. Thank you so much, James. Thank you. Thank you. It's been uh, really good fun talking to you. Thanks. If you have made it this far, thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Beans Media Diary. If you've enjoyed listening, please subscribe or follow. We promise we'll be super grateful. A massive thank you to everyone at Beans Media for their help. Make sure you keep an eye out on our socials for details of the next episode. Bye-bye.